Chapter 10, Slow Recovery In early 1946, two months after Lotzi came back from Germany, we left Hungary with the Bricha. We were young, foolish, stubborn, and inexperienced, and like many young people at that time, bereft of wise parental advice. You sometimes don't know how foolish your decisions are. Even my cousins urged Lotzi to let me finish my high school education. The big draw in leaving, of course, was that we three siblings would be together. And Lotzi insisted that our goal was to leave Europe, that it was no longer a place for Jews, and he didn't want to go to Palestine at that point. Finally, he convinced me that we had to move on, and we left Hungary illegally. We packed up, and whatever we could not take along, we left behind. We left some precious items with our cousin Böschke Klein, Erner's sister, who eventually ended up in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Years later, my cousin Böschke came to visit us in Toronto and brought us one of the items we have left behind in 1946, a sterling silver sugar or salt holder, a wedding present to my parents, beautifully engraved with the date June 10, 1910. It is my second most sacred memento of a life we once enjoyed and cherished. My first sacred memento is my mother's personal prayer book, which she received from my father on their wedding day. It contains a beautiful dedication to her in Hungarian, written in excellent calligraphy. It had been buried with some silver items until Lossi dug them up after the war, and the pages were yellowed with time, and the cover was damaged from moisture. And yet, it is still the most precious item I own. I hope it will be buried with me. We started our journey back to Germany. That was an unusual voyage. As we crossed borders, we and the others we traveled with had to lie on the floor of the trucks and be absolutely quiet so that we would not be discovered. The Bricha leaders knew which border guards to bribe using the money they had collected from us. It was all very clandestine. I couldn't help thinking as I lay on the floor of the truck. I survived Auschwitz and other horrors. Do I need this? leaving home again in this humiliating manner? Indeed, I thought it was crazy. During the months I was in Hungary, some of the socialist ideas I was learning about appealed to me, and I had begun to feel comfortable there. To leave behind everything that was slowly becoming familiar again was madness. Sheer madness. I don't remember why, but we got stuck in Vienna, and there we parted ways with the Palestine-born group. As it turned out, the weeks we were in Vienna left me with new, unexpected and enriching experiences. We stayed in a home for refugees, and we were free to roam and explore the city. 
For a while, there were no major worries, and I had a temporary rest from thinking about my recent past or contemplating my uncertain future. At 17, under the right circumstances, life seemed promising. Vienna was where I saw my first opera, La Bohème, in the Folks Oper Theater, because the State Opera House, the Staatsoper, had been bombed and was not yet restored. This was also the first time I went to a nightclub, and it didn't turn out so well. I had a little liquor, I drank a little wine, I had a little of everything. It didn't take much to get me drunk. The other guys urged my brother to take me home. I remember when we stepped outside, the fresh air hit me. I became unsteady, fell onto my knees, and tore my only pair of silk stockings. That's all I cared about, that I tore my stockings. In those days, stockings were a treasure. When we returned to our room, Lotsi just threw me onto the upper bunk bed, fully dressed, shoes and all, and then went back to the nightclub. He never took me to a club again. After that episode, I explored Vienna and Schönbrunn with some newly made friends from the Home for Refugees. We walked around a lot, visiting beautiful parts of the city and finding places to drink delicious coffee. My new friends were from Budapest and were making the same journey as us. These friends were modern and with it. They had brought a record player along with them, and I had the thrill of listening for the first time to the song Begin the Begin by Cole Porter. This song has always reminded me of that time in Vienna. Eventually, we found a connection who could get us to Germany, and we left Vienna and our transient life behind. The reunion with Avi was incredibly emotional, more so than the one with my brother. I think it was the joy of seeing each other again and recalling the traumatic moment of selection in Birkenau that had torn us sisters apart, an instantly familiar shared memory. But Amy kept repeating, Jutko, you are right here with me, and I still can't believe that you are alive. For two weeks she was pinching me to make sure. She wanted to know what happened, I told her what I remembered, sitting naked with all the others selected to be guests, which I hadn't known then, and Bushka looking in my direction, crying. How I was sick and didn't understand why Bushka was crying. Then, Bushka's group marching back to the barracks, and we never saw each other again. Then I and the group I was with were taken to the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. I don't know why we weren't guests. After the war, we learned that toward the end of 1944, they sometimes ran out of Cyclone B gas, and this may have been the reason for this modern-day miracle. I asked Avi 
if she knew what had happened to Bushka and Clary. Avi took over the story. In August 1944, when Clary and Avi were selected out of Auschwitz-Birkenau, they were taken to another terrible camp called Stutthof, also in Poland. Avi cried as she began telling me what happened. They had a rough time of it, especially Clary. She developed big sores on her body from malnutrition and was slowly going blind. Avi knew that Clary needed more food to get better, so she volunteered, along with about 30 other women from Stutthof, to work in a factory in town where they mended torn German uniforms. They were escorted there by guards in the morning and back in the evening. There, Avi had a chance to interact with Polish workers with whom she began to barter. For her bread ration, she could obtain cigarettes and sewing needles from some of the male POWs, which she then bartered for potatoes, carrots, or whatever vegetables the Polish women brought to the factory. Avi and the other prisoners did this as long as they could. They smuggled these items into the camp by hiding them between the lining and cloth of their coats. Avi would give the vegetables to Clary, even though there was often no way to cook them, so she ate them raw. Then, in the fall of 1944, a new transport came to Stutthof from Auschwitz, and to my sister's immense surprise and dubious joy, Böschke was among them. Böschke told them that the last time she saw me, I was among those who were going to be gassed. And so the sisters cried and said Kaddish in their own way and continued the struggle to survive, Böschke and Avi focusing on helping Clary. Avi suddenly stopped at this point in her story. I will tell you something now, but only once, she said. Please don't ask me about it ever again. One day when the group of women that Avi was with was coming back from the factory, the guards lined them up against the fence. That had never happened before, and the women sensed that something was amiss. Each of them faced one SS guard with an SS-trained dog. Suddenly, the dogs were let loose to attack the women. These were killer dogs, and the women were terrified. Even as Avi told this story, remembering the scenes her eyes bulged with fear as if she were living through it again. The dogs started tearing at the women's coats and clothing, the hidden vegetables falling out one by one, their clothing in tatters around their legs, their naked bodies bleeding. They expected the dogs to go for their jugulars and kill them right there and then. But by a sudden command, 
the dogs were called off. After this incident, Avi didn't have a chance to smuggle any more food to Clary or Bushke, who was also getting thin and weak and had contracted pneumonia. By this point in her story, Avi was crying uncontrollably, pleading. Yutka, please believe me. I really tried to save them both, but could not. They both starved to death, particularly in my arms. I kept hugging and kissing her, assuring her through my tears that I believed her implicitly. Her survival story was horrific, too. As the Soviet army approached Tuthov, it was evacuated. The group Avi was with was taken to the Baltic Sea and put on barges that started to float away. There were some male Norwegian prisoners among them who had been incarcerated years before as communists, and they told the rest of the group to jump into the water because the SS planned to blow up the barges. Avi could not swim and hesitated. But one of these men pushed her into the sea. A little later, she found herself wrapped in a blanket on dry soil. She never discovered who had saved her from drowning. Avi started walking westward with a group of prisoners looking for food. They found a dead horse, and one of the men cut it open and gave each of the group a piece of liver. Avi didn't remember what happened after that because she collapsed into unconsciousness. The next thing she knew, she was lying in a bed between white sheets and a nurse was asking her in German how she was feeling. Her friend Agi from the camp was in the next bed. Avi was told that she had been liberated by the British Army. They had found her almost dead on the road and brought her and Agi to a hospital in Neustadt in Holstein, Germany, where she would be cared for and brought back to life. She was told that she weighed 67 pounds. Then she was transferred to the DP camp where she was convalescing. It was taking her a long time to get back to her normal self. Avi was traumatized for the rest of her life by these horrific experiences and had a lifelong fear of dogs. She was never able to testify and tell her story anywhere, at any time, to anyone. And I never asked her about it again. But I am telling it here so that Avi's heroic act of trying to save her sisters is not forgotten, to preserve it for posterity. After hearing this story, I was devastated because I had expected Bushke to survive. She was so strong, so hopeful, such a positive thinker. My mentor, my guardian angel in Birkenau was lost to me forever except in my memories. 
Thank you, thank you for saving my life, Bershka. I realized then how lucky I was in comparison with Avi. I at least did not have to witness the painful death of two cherished sisters. In the Bergen-Belsen DP camp in the summer of 1946, we... The three surviving siblings of Shandor and Margit Weissenberg family took stock of our enormous losses in the Holocaust. Our parents, on Charlton, our little nephew Peter and his mother, Magda Weiss, murdered in the gas chambers of Birkenau. Jenö, husband of Magda and father of Peter and Miklos, brutally killed in Ukraine along with several cousins. Böschke and Klari starved in the Stutthof concentration camp and a great number of aunts, uncles, cousins, and second cousins and their children, whose names I no longer remember murdered on arrival in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Now our immediate family has shrunk to just three, and this was considered lucky in comparison to those who had survived entirely alone. From here on, we knew we were on our own and had to think seriously about our future. How and why to go on living? What kind of life would we have? What to do next? And where? We weren't fervent Zionists, and we were not filled with a desire to leave for what might have become a Jewish homeland. Not one of us. Perhaps Bershka's experience there influenced us, but we did not sign up to go to British Mandate Palestine. At that time, only a few survivors were let into Palestine legally by the British, and most of those who immigrated did so illegally. We heard that some of the survivors who tried to arrive in Palestine illegally were stopped by the British, who were putting survivors in some kind of refugee camp in Cyprus. We even heard that some survivors were sent back to Bergen-Belsen. Knowing this, we stayed in Bergen-Belsen until we could immigrate somewhere else. Our stay lasted about two years. I could have gone to other countries that were accepting minors, but I wouldn't be separated from my siblings. So, we waited. I believe that time in Bergen-Belsen turned out to be necessary. We could start our healing and gradually transition from the concentration camps and their aftermath to the normal life we aimed for. The Bergen-Belsen DP camp was set up in the area of Germany the British Army had liberated, the British zone as it was known. The camp had been used for German military staff and soldiers during the war. It was also near the concentration camp, which had been burned down by the liberating British military because of the typhus epidemic. 
the thousands of cadavers there, the people who had already died, and those who died shortly after liberation were interned in mass graves. British Army officers ordered the SS soldiers they captured to carry and place the cadavers into the graves with their bare hands. By the time Lotze and I arrived there to reunite with Avi, we found a well-functioning, organized community. The British military was running the camp, but the Jewish leadership managed the daily affairs and lives of the 12,000 people there. It was best suited to understand the needs of this nationally and religiously diverse group of traumatized Jews. The leader of the Jewish survivors, Joseph Rosenzoff, was president of the Central Committee of Liberated Jews in the British Zone, representing not just the deepest in Bergen-Belsen, but all Jewish deepest in the British Zone. The camp was well-managed, Food, medicine, and most items needed for basic sustenance were free, supplied by the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee and by the Jewish Relief Unit. We even received free American cigarettes every week. Much of the staple food was obtained from American military warehouses, and all the canned stuff was khaki-colored. We ate canned egg powder and peaches so often that I swore that after this I would never eat canned peaches again. What was happening in Bergen-Belsen was just amazing. It was like a shtetl, a small town. People dated and fell in love, and there were many marriages in those first two years. Amazingly, Bridal dresses materialized out of creative minds and golden fingers altered from hand-me-down clothing that was donated from America. There were a few rabbis who could wed these couples. Then children were born, in that order, of course. And slowly we got used to seeing baby carriages being pushed on the streets of the camp. Life truly started to resemble something normal and, in most cases, even something happy. But we also knew that it was temporary and that one day we would have to leave this safe cocoon. Institutions were set up. There were Yiddish schools for the children who had miraculously survived, a Yiddish newspaper called Unsere Stimme, Our Voice, a Yiddish theater called Katzet, which means concentration camp, and various cultural events. Everything was in Yiddish because the bulk of the Jews were from Poland, Lithuania, Romania, the remnants of Yiddish-speaking Jews. We Hungarians were a foreign species as far as other Jews were concerned. We didn't speak Yiddish, but we learned fast. The Polish Jews were definitely in charge. Naturally, political discussions and even heated debates became a daily pastime for most of us. We continued to be opinionated, as we have been in our past. Politically, the camp was remarkable. Jews there had strong opinions about everything, 
So what happened is that the adults in their 20s and 30s, there were relatively few older people who survived, and some youth groups formed according to certain ideologies about the war and the hurban and about the emerging issue of Palestine and the possibility of an Israeli state. One might say that political parties were formed in this DP camp. The Soviet Union with its Red Army was held in high esteem as one of the liberators of the camps, and socialist ideas were popular, certainly not shunned. Our main preoccupation was with what lay ahead of us. Many survivors in Bergen-Belsen supported a self-governing Jewish presence in Palestine. So the question was Europe versus Israel. What to choose? The debate was incessant. From the supporters of Borohov on the far left to the Betar movement on the far right and everything in between. The majority of the survivors identified with Hashomer Hatzair, a left-wing Zionist group that had been active in Central Europe before the Hurban. The Shlichim, the emissaries who came from the Yishuv, the Jewish community in Palestine encouraged survivors to go there. We're going to have an Israel. Come, come, come. They would urge us with fervor. They wanted young people. They knew that the Yishuv would need fighters, and so there was a lot of propaganda to push people to make aliyah. For me, these debates and discussions were new and inspiring. All this political discourse was very beneficial psychologically because we were still traumatized, even though we didn't think of ourselves that way, and it diverted our attention from our traumatic experience and made us focus on possibilities for the future. The Bergen-Belsen DP camp was also a place where you could always find a shoulder to cry on. We talked about our experiences all the time, at least in the Hungarian section. There were two kinds of discussions, either reminiscing about life before Katzet or about life during Katzet, the horrors. Those memories were still fresh and with us all the time. As the days and months passed slowly, the stark reality of our temporary situation as kept people in a camp stared us in the face. Avi Lotzi and I began thinking about our future. What next? Where to go from here with minimal life skills? At one point, going to Brazil was a strong possibility. Our first cousin, Olga Schoenfeld, from Bihar Nagybayum, married to Miklos Klein, had managed to escape from Belgium just hours before Nazis occupied it. We heard that good news while we were still in Debrecen. Also, that Miklos, who had worked in the diamond industry, had managed to take a considerable quantity of diamonds and other assets with them to Brazil. This helped them establish themselves comfortably in Rio de Janeiro and build a thriving business there too and eventually acquire many properties. Olga didn't forget her favorite aunt, 
our mother, who had organized her entire wedding to Miklos in our home in Debrecen, and she managed to find us her aunt Margit surviving children in the Bergen-Belsen DP camp. She sent us affidavits guaranteeing that they would support us just to get us to Rio de Janeiro. And so we hopefully waited for the day of our departure. Then the most disappointing news came that the Brazilian government had closed its doors temporarily to new immigrants. We were told that there was a mix-up with an illegal refugee group and we wouldn't be able to get in for another five years. Our hopes to go to Brazil were dashed. Who wanted to stay in that camp and in Germany for five more years? We waited for some other opportunities. Getting to the United States was nearly impossible. They had strict rules for letting in Jewish immigrants according to quotas that had been established based on nationality. The Hungarian quota was small and our chances of getting into the United States were not very promising. So we stayed put. At the same time, we started to realize that no matter where we would end up, we would have to work at something to make a living. Being orphaned young, with most of our close relatives also murdered, we had little help from anyone. We could rely only on ourselves. Our young lives had been brutally interrupted and we had little time to acquire enough education or life skills to carry us forward. It was scary. Fortunately, Avi did have sewing skills that she could rely on, and Lotzi started to work for the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, where he gained some skills and learned a bit of English. I was 17, and I, too, had to acquire skills. Continuing my high school education there was out of the question because of my poor knowledge of Yiddish. However, the internationally respected ORT trade school, the Organization for Rehabilitation Through Training, opened a branch in our DP camp to teach and train dental technicians. An American military dental technician, Mr. Grimberg, I think his name was, an elderly man, was the teacher. The course was very popular. We learned all aspects of being a good dental technician, taking impressions, making crowns and bridges, fitting full and partial dentures and other skills. Luckily or sadly, we had many people to learn on because many inhabitants of Bergen-Belsen had broken teeth, neglected teeth, or teeth that were missing altogether. I graduated became a full-fledged dental technician. There is a photo of me working on one of the polishing machines now hanging in the Neuberger Holocaust Education Center in Toronto, and the original diploma is in the Bergen-Belsen Memorial Museum. Quite a few of those who took the course ended up making their living in this profession, though I was never able to use this hard-earned skill I was so proud of. But learning a trade was still important at that time, 
it gave me self-confidence. As students, we also socialized, organized dances, went for long walks, and formed friendships. In hindsight, my time in that DP camp was life-affirming and gave me the opportunity to slowly become a functioning human being. True, at the time we disliked it and we complained constantly. In the meantime, even with a diploma in my hands, we still had to wait for a door to open for us. The Canadian government finally opened its doors to immigrants when the garment industry, in partnership with the Jewish community, launched a project, the Garment Workers Scheme, to bring over workers who were barely needed in the garment and fur industries in Montreal, Toronto, and Winnipeg. With the government's permission, Canadian Overseas Garment Commission representatives came to Belgium Belgium to test, select, and recruit a large group of us with sewing skills. We were given to understand that being able to sew a straight seam properly was all that was needed to pass the sewing test. Lotzi and I practiced sewing on a borrowed machine day and night. Avi taught us, though she didn't have to practice. She was an experienced and talented seamstress, which had been helpful when she needed to obtain extra food for Klani and Bershke. After liberation, when she regained her health and strength, she made her own clothing and later she made wonderful dresses for me too, all sewn by hand as she didn't yet have access to a sewing machine. The day of the test arrived. We had to appear before a commission of three men. We spoke Yiddish, the only common language we had. In the end, we Hungarian Jews had learned enough Yiddish to get by. Avi was the first to be tested. The man watched as she worked intently. She passed with flying colors, of course. I was next. I made the required seam. They were not sure about me, and they hesitated. We sensed the problem, and Avi told me in Hungarian that if they didn't accept me, she wouldn't go either. As the man seemed about to reject me, I said to them in my limited Yiddish, You don't want to separate two sisters like the Germans did, do you? I don't know where I got the courage. Maybe it was utter desperation. Surprised, they looked at each other, and one of them said, Okay, you can go too. A big sigh of relief. It worked. My daring gamble really worked. Then it came to my brother. In spite of all the teaching and practice, Letsy was silly enough to sit down at the back side of the sewing machine. His fate was sealed. They flunked him. At that time, Letsy was working for the UNRWA as a boy Friday, the go-to person in the organization. His advisor told Leslie, they called Letsy by his English name, to let us come to Canada and we could sponsor him to join us in three months. 
Indeed, that's what happened. Avi and I signed up to go to Canada. We were so excited about leaving, but we didn't know much about Canada. It was just a country far away, and yet it was also somewhere in the world where we could work and have a chance to live a normal, peaceful life. We hoped that we made the right choice, even though at that time Canada wasn't that welcoming to Jews. It had taken two years after the war for them to open their doors to Jewish refugees who were languishing in DP camps. For us, being part of the garment workers was a much appreciated, life-altering opportunity, even though this endeavor was initiated by the non-unionized section of the needle trade, something we didn't know at the time. But it wouldn't have mattered even if we knew. To leave hated, blood-soaked Europe behind and have a chance to live in Canada was all that really mattered.